once upon a time there was a scientist who was introduced to a drug that made him feel wonderful. It made him feel complete. And he knew that this drug could help many people all over the world. Soon, however, the government decided that no one should have this drug, not even scientists or doctors. In response, this man told everyone who wanted to know how to make the drug themselves. Today I have the story of a remarkable man named Alexander Shulgin on the 189th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am Jeff Kelly, your host and storyteller. It's gotten very cold and snowy in Chicagoland, but you know, a nasty winter makes one enjoy the spring all the more. Am I right, folks? At least that's what I tell myself to make me feel better. So on the last episode, I said I was going to make a huge announcement this week. So here it is. The big announcement. The Psychon Network, a network that I've been a proud member of for over five years, has decided to call it a day. Yep, sadly, they're shutting down. This is totally understandable since I'm probably the only podcast still on the network that's publishing episodes. Psychon's been great, and I will always appreciate being a part of it. And I've met some wonderful people through the network, and And it's just one of those things, you know, all good things must come to an end. But I'm planning for Coffee with Jeff to continue somehow. Right now I'm looking into alternatives to Psycon, other other web publishing sites, and we'll see how that goes. I'll have more on that later. But I'll have just two more shows this year, one on November 29th and one on December 13th, and then I'll shut it down for the rest of the year while I regroup. So basically after this, just two more shows on the Psycon Network, and then we'll see. So anyway, how about a story of a man who had a lifelong obsession with psychedelic drugs? The word hallucination is defined as an apparent perception, as by sight or hearing, for which there is no real or external cause. Among these drugs, the hallucinogens, are included mescaline, a chemical taken from the peyote cactus, psilocybin, extracted from a variety of Mexican mushroom, DMT, synthesized from the compound tryptamine, and of course, LSD-25, a derivative of lysergic acid and currently the best known of the hallucinogens. What do you know about the drug ecstasy? If you're like me, you know it as some sort of popular, perhaps dangerous drug used in rave culture in the 80s and 90s. According to Wikipedia, it's a psychoactive drug primarily used as a recreational drug. The desired effects include altered sensations, increased energy, empathy, and pleasure. Adverse effects include addiction, memory problems, paranoia, difficult sleeping, teeth grinding, blurred vision, sweating, and rapid heartbeat. The real name for this drug is MDMA, or... Methylene dioxymethamphetamine. I wasn't about to pronounce that myself. It was synthesized in 1912 by German chemist Anton Kolisch. But soon after it was created, it was pretty much forgotten about. 
That was until 1965 when a man known as the godfather of psychedelics discovered its properties. He was an American medicinal chemist, biochemist, organic chemist, pharmacologist, psychopharmacologist, and author named Alexander Shulgin, Sasha to his friends. His life began on June 17, 1925 in Berkeley, California. To say that he was intelligent may be quite an understatement. His fascination with chemicals began when he was just seven years old. He could remember going into a local chemical supply store. It was a 15-minute bicycle ride from my house, he remembered. I'd go there and say, I'd like to get some sodium biocarbonate or some magnesium sulfate. They'd take a glassine bag and put some chemicals in it and there would be no charge. Today there would be regulations against that. He was a prodigy mastering two foreign languages, Russian and French, and three musical instruments, violin, viola, and piano. At the age of 15, he was given a Harvard University scholarship to study organic chemistry. But he found life, mainly due to his age, difficult at the prestigious university. It was a total, total disaster, he recalled. These people around me were sons and daughters of important people with money and property, position and stature. I was not, and there was no social blending at all. So he dropped out in 1943 after about two years and joined the U.S. Navy. It was while serving on the USS Pope in 1944 that something happened that got him thinking about the human mind. He had a thumb infection. He was given a glass of orange juice by the nurse right before surgery. In the glass, he noticed a white powder floating in the bottom. He assumed it was a sedative, and he passed out. When he awoke after the procedure, he was told that the powder was only undissolved sugar. It was then he began thinking about the power of the mind and the machinery of the mental process. He was also amazed by morphine. It doesn't quiet the pain, Shulgin said. It makes you indifferent to it. It depersonalizes the pain. After an honorable discharge in 1946, he returned to his education at UC Berkeley to study chemistry. Around the same time, Shulgin met and married his first wife, Nina. I couldn't find out a lot about Nina. I know they were married for 30 years before her death in 1977. He received a Ph.D. in biochemistry in 1954. Soon after, he took a job with Dow Chemical. It was while working at Dow that he invented Zeektran, the first biodegradable pesticide. One day, a friend of Shulgin's offered him something to try. It was a chemical extracted from the San Pedro cactus. It was called mescaline, which is the active ingredient in peyote. Peyote has been used for at least 5,700 years by Native Americans in Mexico. After trying the drug, he wrote of the psychedelic episode he experienced. I learned that there was a great deal inside me, and he thought that it had been brought on by a fraction of a gram of a white solid, but that in no way whatsoever could it be argued that these memories had been contained within that white solid. I understood that our entire universe is contained in the mind and the spirit, we may choose not to find access to it. We may even deny its existence, but it is indeed there, inside us, and there are chemicals that can catalyze its availability. Of the experience, he said, I saw colors that I was totally unfamiliar with. A flower had a color that I couldn't even give a name to. I recalled memories of childhood. Then I thought, why would 400 milligrams of a white crystal have all this in it? What's it doing to allow me to communicate with parts of me that I haven't communicated for a long time? 
From that moment on, psychoactive drugs became his main focus, a fascination that would last him for the rest of his life. Due to the discovery of Zeke-Tran, which made Dow Chemicals millions, Dow gave him unlimited freedom to pursue his interests, which for Sasha meant experimenting with and making psychedelics. It became his obsession. And for a while, Dow and Shulgin had the perfect working relationship. If he invented a drug that Dow liked, they were allowed to patent it. If they didn't take an interest in it, he could publish his findings in Nature and the Journal of Organic Chemistry and other places. He spent his time playing with simple molecules of mescaline, modifying them to see what they would do, changing this or that one bit at a time, trying to discover the secrets of its psychedelic reaction. He thought there could be great benefits in the drug, that it could be therapeutically important. This relationship worked for a while, but the times were changing. The 60s hippie movement was heating up, and LSD was the new drug for a new generation. But in the press, LSD culture was something to be feared. Psychedelic drugs were a parent's worst nightmare, and the government did everything possible to encourage these terrors. Eventually, Dow decided they didn't want to be associated with psychedelics and decided to halt all research. Shulgin began working more and more on his own, eventually leaving Dow to do his own thing. He began to freelance as a consultant to research labs and hospitals. In a shed in the back of his home in Berkeley, he created a laboratory and started to make his own psychedelic compounds and drugs. It is said he created more than a hundred of these. The thing about his research was he became his own test subject. This was because he needed first-hand knowledge of what the drug did to his brain. He would say that it is very hard to get a lab rat to report on experiences of empathy or to ask questions about the meaning of life. In early August of 1969, the members of the Manson family carried out the gruesome Tate-LaBianca murders. To many, especially in the press and the government, LSD was to blame. It was the popular opinion at the time that psychedelic drugs produced evil things. And also, drugs were linked to anti-war protesters. This got President Nixon on his high horse and declared a war on drugs. He called drug abuse public enemy number one, and he signed into the law the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act of 1970. In 1971, most psychedelic drugs such as LSD became illegal in many parts of the world under the UN Convention on Psychedelic Substances of 1971. This made any drug sharing similarities in chemical structure to LSD, regardless of whether they were harmful or helpful, forbidden in most of the world. And there were no exceptions. It didn't matter if they were considered non-addictive or if there was no evidence to support long-term harm on mental health. Due to general paranoia, no research was allowed when it came to these substances. This saddened Alexander Shulgin. Even though he didn't approve of the way psychedelic drugs were being used by the younger generation, he was a scientist who believed it wasn't about having a good time, it was about research. Psychedelics should be used with respect, he thought, and if you were stupid about their use, you could be dead. Yet he was a libertarian who believed that people should be able to do what they want in the privacy of their own homes. But the new world view on the dangers of these drugs made life difficult for him. The DEA, Drug Enforcement Agency, could bust down his door. He began looking for drugs he could experiment with that would be considered legal. 
Eventually, he was able to obtain a DEA Schedule I license for an analytical laboratory, which allowed him to synthesize and possess many otherwise illegal drugs. It was in 1976 that he met a medical student that introduced him to a drug he hadn't known about before. It was called MDMA. MDMA was first synthesized in 1912 by Merck, a German multinational pharmaceutical, chemical, and life science company. They patented the drug in 1913. But the drug up until the 70s had pretty much been forgotten about. Shulgin was so interested in the drug that he resynthesized it for his own testing. Testing it on himself, he was very impressed by the drug. It was completely unique. He said, I feel absolutely clean inside and there is nothing but pure euphoria. I am overcome by the profundity of the experience. I feel I've come home. I am complete. By this time, Shulgin had married to the love of his life, Anne. He realized that this drug could have great benefits in psychiatry, so he invited some close friends to his home and shared the drug with Anne and his colleagues. The drug made people want to talk, to engage with others. Some felt that they could talk about deep or personal subjects with special clarity. Shulgin said he felt that he had waited his whole life to get to this point. Anne said, Most people that took MDMA had an amazing experience, which is basically to be able to have insight into yourself without self-rejection, without hating yourself, which is something that usually takes six months of psychotherapy to get to that point. It is one of the most healing experiences. When I took MDMA for the first time, I sat outside the house on a chair and cried my eyes out, just unloading years and years of repressed sadness. This taught me how to love myself, warts and all. That was the way Shulgin handled his research on all his drugs. First he tested it on himself, and then once he determined it was safe, Anne would try it. When both of them were confident, they would invite friends and colleagues to their home for more tests. He called them the Psychonauts, and he took meticulous notes on their research sessions. They rated their experiences according to a scale he invented. It ranged from a minus sign, which represented no change, up to a plus four, which is a sublime, potentially life-changing peak experience. There were a few rules for these sessions. Subjects could not be taken to any medication, and they had to refrain from ingesting any other drugs for at least three days before the session. If someone said hand in the air while raising his or her hand during a trip, that meant they wanted to discuss a serious, reality-based concern or problem. And sexual contact was prohibited between people not previously involved. This is understandable, I guess, as being on a psychedelic drug, you might be more apt to have sex with a stranger and regret it later, I guess. But as far as MDMA, its positive uses in psychiatry quickly became apparent. Dr. Jack Downing said, It's a drug that allows people to be free of their fears and to face up with what bothers them. It seemed wonderful, helpful, and the best of all, it was legal. But then it made its way into the community. It began in a nightclub in Dallas, Texas in the early 80s. It was a club that was basically Texas's Studio 54. A man started walking around with a bag filled with little white pills. He would sell you one of these pills for $15. He called it ecstasy. We know it as MDMA. This drug became the new hit in the rave culture, and it was quickly being used by millions. No other drug in history became so popular so fast. 
Some consider the drug dangerous, while others contend it isn't. Not being an expert and having never tried it, I really can't say. But the government, of course, said it was harmful. Supporters of the drug say there is no evidence of danger. Regardless, with Nancy Reagan telling kids to say no to drugs, the DEA quickly moved in to make it illegal. Shulgin wrote, Drugs are not good or bad. There is nothing that is intrinsically either sacred or evil in a crystal of white solid or in a drop of aqueous solution. I have been in direct communication with perhaps a score of physicians who have become sufficiently impressed with the value and safety of MDMA to have built much of their psychiatry practice about its use. Shulgin got a group of his colleagues together and prepared to fight the government. They testified saying the drug was safe, but the government was determined to stop it. According to Dr. Davis Nichols, who testified in the trial that it wasn't a dangerous drug, the government said that even though the drug did nothing wrong, they didn't want people to get high and to take these things to make themselves feel good. So on July 1st, 1985, MDMA became a Schedule One drug, the most restrictive category intended for heroin and other addictive drugs. This made its use, or any research of the drug, a crime. This really depressed Shulgin. He watched the government brag about arresting people for the manufacture of the drug. He became paranoid and thought he might be a target. The idea that the DEA might raid his home and confiscate all his research was a real concern. So he decided to do something about it. With the help of his wife, they wrote a book called Call, A Chemical Love Story. PCAL is spelled P-I-H-K-A-L, which stands for Phenethylamines I Have Known and Loved. The first half of the book is a fictionalized autobiography of Alexander and Ann Shulgin, and the second part describes 179 different psychedelic compounds, most of which Shulgin discovered himself, including detailed synthesis instructions, bioessays, dosages, and other commentaries. Anne said that all of her chapters are written under the influence of psychedelics. But of course there was a problem. No publisher was going to publish it because it was a bit too edgy, giving anyone with a basic understanding of chemistry the instructions on how to make illegal drugs. So the Shulgins decided to publish the book themselves. They set up a company called Transform Press, contacted a printer, and got things rolling. It took quite a lot of work to learn the ins and outs of self-publishing. In the end, they decided to print 5,000 copies, for they had no idea whether they would sell out immediately or if 5,000 would be more than they would ever sell. The first run sold out almost as soon as it was published, so a second order of 20,000 was printed. They knew right away that this might result in some legal problems. They had visions of masked men breaking into their lab with baseball bats, smashing everything in the middle of the night. Trying to avoid this, the first copies were sent out to chemists who worked for the DEA. It took two years or so after the book was published to make its way to the top men in the DEA, and that resulted in what Alexander and Anne called the Day of the Invasion. In 1994, according to the couple, the DEA invaded their home with one goal in mind, to find a reason to get back his Schedule One license, which allowed him to work on drugs that were illegal for most. During the raid, the government agents found 50 or 100 pills that had been sent to Shulgin for analysis. It turned out that each pill 
that contained a Schedule One drug could result in a $25,000 fine. That's $25,000 for each pill. The fine, if I understand it correctly, seemed to be a bit of a technicality. See, he was allowed to have Schedule One drugs because he had the license. But it had something to do with their transportation. I don't quite understand all the details, but it seemed that Shulgin was facing a very hefty fine. When Shulgin said, yes, but I have a Schedule One license, the agent responded by saying, not for long. The potential fine of $25,000 for each pill wasn't a great situation. The DEA said that he surrendered his license, promised not to accept any more anonymous pills, and pay a single fine of $25,000, he could avoid the huge fine he was facing. He had no choice but to agree, even though he didn't have the money. Friends of the couple started a fund to raise cash for him, and it only took about a month to get to $25,000. The good news was, when he had a Schedule One license, it gave the DEA the right to inspect his lab anytime they wished. They could show up whenever they felt like it. Now, since Shulgin no longer had that license, they would require a warrant, like any private citizen, for his home to be searched. It also inspired them to write their second book, Thicol, The Continuation. Thicol, like Pecol, was divided into two parts. The first part begins with a fictionalized autobiography, picking up where the previous book left off, including the raid by the DEA. The second part details another 55 psychedelic compounds, including their chemical structures, dosage recommendations, and comments. One thing about these books is, for the first part, they kept all rights reserved. But the second part, the instructions on how to make psychedelics, can be conditionally distributed for non-commercial reproduction. In other words, Shulgin's wanted the world to know about psychedelics, to get the information out there. And it was at this point that his work in psychedelic drugs came to an end. Yes, the government had shut him down, but it was too late. His work was out there. And even though he was getting up there in years, Shulgin still felt frustrated that his work couldn't be used to help those in need. People like war veterans were haunted by what they had seen or done. But thankfully, in recent years, his research has been renewed and the laws of testing these drugs have been loosened. Psychedelic drugs like MDMA are now being used more and more to treat things like PTSD in war veterans. One of the most satisfying moments of my life, Dr. Rick Doblin, Ph.D., said, when I was able to share with Sasa Shulgin that we had gotten permission to start MDMA research. To share that with him, that there was hope, made him incredibly joyous. Right now we are at a point, according to Dr. Julie Holland, that more veterans from Afghanistan and Iraq are dying from suicide than were actually killed during the wars. MDMA or ecstasy is helping those who are suffering. Dr. Holland said it's a quick way not only to address the symptoms, but the problem itself. It's been a huge success. Ann and Sasa Shulgin spent a lot of their later years lecturing and writing, always keeping busy. The later years of his life were spent at his farm in Lafayette, California, where he began to get dementia, mostly a severe loss of short-term memory. His stepdaughter, Wendy Tucker, said he took it gracefully as he did with his death. 
He died in peace and without pain on June 2nd, 2014. Well, you have to realize what I'm searching for, which is not for altering consciousness or for having fun or for enjoying this or for discovering that. I'm looking for tools that can be used for studying the mind. And other people then will use the tools in finding out the aspects of the mental process and how it ties to the brain. But my main drive is in is, is a tool maker, making of tools and letting other people exploit them. And I'm interested in things that affect the mental process, the function of the mind, which is not necessarily to be found in an animal. So the questions I am addressing are how does one affect the attitude towards something, the self-image of something, the feeling of, 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 of religious ecstasy or of fear and paranoia, something you can't see in a rat. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to the sad sack. So a little bit before I go, there are two videos of Sasa Shulgin that I used a lot for my story. Both are on YouTube and Amazon Prime. One is a documentary called Dirty Pictures, and the other is episode three of a series called I Am Rebel. Both are very interesting, and I recommend them both. I'll have links to these in the show notes. You can also find many interviews of both Anne and Sasha on YouTube. They look and talk just how you would imagine. Definitely a 60s-loving couple. I couldn't get enough of Shulgin's huge white beard and wonderful warm smile. In one interview they did in 2013, they talked about their books and the raid by the DEA on their home. But it was a comment left by a viewer that I thought summed things up pretty well. A viewer wrote, Alexander and Ann Shulgin, if this is how you turn out from years of taking psychedelics, then the whole planet should be taking them. Ann and Sasha are two very beautiful people. And now the ending credits. I want to thank everybody for supporting the network over the years. I won't bother telling you to go to our Patreon page anymore, as we've talked about, Psycon is shutting down. But you can still email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. You can follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that you can join. Your story ideas are still welcome. If you want to help support the show, then why don't you go over to iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast and write a review or leave a few stars or something. Those really help. And remember, links to all the sources that I used to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. Every episode I say this, and I want Brecky to know I really mean it. I thank him for letting this podcast be on the Psycon Network for five years. I also thank my wife for being my wife of 36 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickert for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to everybody who listens to this show, thank you so much. And those of you who are kind enough to repost this on Facebook and Twitter, yep, you have a special place in my heart. Two more shows to go. I'll be back. Bye. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some.
some cream Didn't like it, now he never looks back Coffee with Jeff Coffee, coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff Coffee, coffee with Jeff Met a girl from Beantown Jeff was always hanging around She drank tea, but that was okay She was the dawn of Jeff's new day Coffee with Jeff Coffee, coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff Coffee more coffee with Jeff Years go by and life's filled with change Sometimes your plans get rearranged He's seen it all and he's weathered it too So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you Coffee with Jeff Coffee more coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff Coffee Yeah.